This is Panama Today, folks. This is your host, Bill Wilbur. Music and inspiration right here. We're glad you're with us the next 30 minutes. So many times when we start our day, we kind of get woken up and uh, we begin to say, oh, what day is this? Or what responsibilities do I have? And uh, we start listing those things and sometimes it causes a little panic. But if we take our moment and say the words from Psalm 106, verse one, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Today is a gift. Today is a gift from God. We'll never have it again. And so as we would take this day and give it back to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for this day. What do you want me to do with it? So many times we wish away the days of our life. If it's like on Wednesday, you say, oh, only two more days to the weekend. If you say, uh, wow, vacation's in three months, and you start clicking that away. When I was smaller, I would count down the days to Christmas. And sometimes you'll see that on television or radio, they'll, or in the newspapers, they'll cut, count down the days left of shopping before Christmas. When I uh, am over at the prison, these, the prisoners are always counting off days, either till they go to trial or to mainly when they're going to be released. And they all know. If you ask them, they, uh, you say, how much time you left? You know, they got it right down to the day. They say, well, I got three months and six days left. And, this, it, and I have encouraged them, don't, don't just, you know, just count away the days. It would be so natural to do that. But as you become a Christian, you look at it in a whole different way. A whole different way. I try to say, look, you only got this amount of time left before you're released for Bible study, for fellowship with these guys in serious prayer. I said, when you get out, you're not going to have this time. You're not going to have that time to sit and uh, just study your Bible and pray. I mean, once you become a Christian, it has a whole different perspective on this thing that this is the mission field God has given you. And you have this opportunity to win people inside the prison for Christ. People like myself and others who have prison ministries, they're, they're always working to get in, you know, get permission, get in, and, and uh, then gather the guys together, and only certain ones come, and other guys watch you from a distance. Ah, I'm not going to go there. I'll be counted one of them, and I don't want to be counted one of them, but I'm kind of interested in what they're saying. And these guys who are already in who become Christians inside. You got the mission field. You got the mission field. This is the most amazing testimony that comes out of the imprisoned church, as I could use that term, um, and out of the persecuted church. Some have actually said, you know, I, I, I know I want to be released. I know my family wants me out. But, you know, they've won people to Christ inside. They're seeking to disciple them. And they want to get them strong believers before they leave. So that psalm again, just start your day like this. Praise the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Thank you, Jesus. We want to give this day to you and see what great things you're going to do in it. The whole idea that we pick up from the Psalms is that our God is a rock, he's a fortress, a strength, a high tower. The whole idea is to get us to see from the analogies in God's own creation 
that he's unchangeable, that he's unshakable, that he's always there. And there is never a time that we can say that God has forsaken us. He hasn't. He's always there for us. Now, what do you believe or what do you know, I should say, about Mormonism? We see people walking around, especially younger people, with white shirts and a tie, black pants or dark pants, looking very neat, impressive, and carrying something under their arm, which has got a Book of Mormon in it and some tracts and some information about Mormonism. And the Mormon missionaries are to give two years of their life and serve someplace, all the young people. This is um, very noble and it is very effective. What do we know about Mormonism that is similar to our faith? And the Mormon missionaries build on this because we have many terms such as God and eternal life. And as we use these terms of sin and the true gospel, what they got a different meaning that they're bringing to it. So we're using the same words, but we got different meanings to it. Well, a brief history of Mormonism is that Joseph Smith, the founder and first prophet of Mormonism, was born on December 23rd in 1805 in the town of Sharon, Vermont. According to the official account, when Smith was 14, two persons radiating with light appeared to him, identifying themselves as God the Father and Jesus Christ. From them, Smith said he received instructions to join no existing religious group, for they were all evil in God's sight. Smith later wrote that on the evening of September 21st, 1823, an angel named Moroni appeared to him three times. Each time Moroni told Smith that he was sent from God to reveal ancient gold plates inscribed with the history of the inhabitants of the Americas. With the plates were also two seer, that's S-E-E-R, seer stones used to translate the characters on the plates. The next day, Smith allegedly found the plates buried in a hillside near Palmyra, New York, but he was told that they would be given to him only when he became worthy. According to Smith's writings, he retrieved the golden plates on September 22nd, 1827. That's basically four years later. Smith later began translating the plates using the seer stones. From these translations, the first book or first edition of the Book of Mormon was published in March of 1830. So almost three years later. Smith claimed that in late 1829 or early 1830, the apostle Peter, James, and John appeared to him also and restored the Melchizedek priesthood. Ordained with this new authority, Joseph organized his church on April 6, 1830. Several years later, a number of Smith's followers, led by Brigham Young, migrated to Utah and built Salt Lake City. From that desert arose the empire now known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, the article I want to share with you is by James Walker, Witnessing to Mormons Resource Library. And I mention that because with Google on your computer, you can just bring this up and find this person's name and learn more about it. There's much more about the character of Joseph Smith 
that has been held highly in question. So this man who is sharing this, and I share it with you now, James Walker, witnessing to Mormon's resource library. I've also run a lot of these one minute clips on this program about the American Track Society and how valuable tracks are as they are put in people's lives. And the American Track Society has written uh, at least one, if not more, our Mormonism. And uh, James Walker shares his testimony a little bit here. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I believe that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God and that the LDS, that's Latter-day Saints Church, was the only true church on earth. You see, I was born into an LDS home. My father's side of the family had been members of the church for four generations. At the age of eight, I was baptized into the Latter-day Saints Church and received the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. From that early age to adulthood, I was involved in many aspects of Mormon life. I tithed and attended the priesthood, fast and testimony, and sacred meetings. I also performed my duty in our family home evening and home teaching. I even obtained my temple rec uh, recommend and entered the Salt Lake City Temple to perform the baptism for the dead. As my commitment increased, a good friend of mine who was not a member of the church became concerned for me. He had been researching the Latter-day Saints Church and shared some facts I didn't know. I began to wonder about my personal salvation. Although I was in good standing with the church, I was not sure I was keeping all the laws. I also read in the Book of Mormon, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. As a Mormon, I thought I had been trusting Christ as my personal savior, but I was really trusting my testimony and my good works for salvation. I finally knelt down and admitted to my Heavenly Father that even on my best days, I was not perfect. I, like everyone else, was a sinner. It was hard, but I told God I was no longer going to trust in my own good works or any church for eternal life. From that time on, I was going to trust His Son, Jesus Christ, alone to save me from my sins. And uh, James Walker went on to uh, give us some comparisons between the doctrines of the Christian church and Mormonism. Here's the first one. They're quite different. The Mormon doctrines are very different from those in the Bible, although they say they believe in the Bible. Now let's look at the one called the true God. The God I worshiped as a Latter-day Saint was very different from the God of the Bible. Now he says the God I worshiped, that's a small g. I had worshiped God, the Eternal Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost. The names were right, but the God was wrong. The God that I worshiped as a Latter-day Saint had a body of flesh and bone, was glorified, exalted man, and was one of the many gods. I even learned that the Mormon God has eternal wives through whom spirit children are born. And these children have the potential to become other gods. However, the God of the Bible does not have a body of flesh and bone. 
God is a spirit. A spirit has not flesh and bones. He is not a man who was exalted to Godhead. God is not a man. The God of the Bible has no wife and stands alone as God. The teaching on sin is quite different also. Mormonism teaches that Adam's fall in the Garden of Eden was actually a fall upward. That was not sinful, but rather necessary to propagate the human race. It also says that man has the potential of becoming God just as Christ did. Man is king of kings and lord of lords in embryo, waiting to be happened, waiting to be born. However, the Bible says that Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden actually caused the spiritual and physical death for all persons. Mankind's ultimate goal is not godhood, but rather people have been punished precisely because they thought they could make themselves like God. That's quite a difference, isn't it? And then about the true Christ. The Christ of the Bible and the Christ of Mormonism are two completely different persons. Mormonism says that before Christ's earthly ministry, he was the first spirit child born to the heavenly father and mother. In fact, Mormonism teaches that Satan, Lucifer, was originally the spirit brother of Christ. Mormonism also teaches that God the Father in his glorified and physical body had sexual intercourse with the Virgin Mary that resulted in the conception of Christ's physical body. But the Bible teaches something different, doesn't it? That Christ is the only eternal God, not the product of conception. Satan was originally a created angel who led a rebellion against God in heaven. Mormonism says that Christ's blood shed on the cross provides for the eternal resurrection of all people. Its effectiveness for cleansing personal sin, however, depends on each person's repentance and good works. In contrast, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross was sufficient for the cleansing and forgiveness of all as an individual's personal sin. And you all know that a person must make that individual decision to respond to what Christ has done. I want to just interject something here that there's a teaching. It goes way back. It's, it's, it's always been around. It just comes out in different forms and under some different name, different religion, different cult. And, and that is that uh, all people in the end will be saved. That the scripture says, yes, Christ died for all people. Well, he did. But the scripture also teaches that individuals must make a response to receive that salvation as a gift. Now you've heard that preached here and many other places, and of course, right in your churches and in your own uh, Bible, this is what it says. But there's always, uh, when a cult comes along, they take the Bible and something else, and another book to help you understand the Bible. And that then gives you the distortion as only selected passages are lifted out. And I have, shared many times on here, there's a way to avoid error, and that is, number one, see the context in which that verse or that passage is written. Number two, see the historical setting in which that was written. Why was that written at that particular time? Because as a letter to Corinth was written, it was to correct certain errors. 
the letter to uh, Galatia, Galatians there was written to correct certain errors. I don't, I'm not going to take the time to teach what those errors were at that time, but that's why those letters were there. And so you have to see the, the context and the historical setting, but you also see how does that passage of Scripture or that verse of Scripture line up with the rest of the teaching, the whole embodiment of the Scripture itself, Old Testament and New Testament. And that will help get away from errors or heresy. Heresy is to take a teaching of the Scripture and then take it all out of balance. One of those errors, which I just mentioned, is that all will be saved at the end. So a person takes the teaching that God is love and that Christ died for all people everywhere at all times for all their sin. He did that. But then you have the other part of the teaching and the other part of the verse that all who would receive him and repent from their sin would have eternal life. So you see how important the context, the historical setting, and the uh, relationship with the rest of the scripture uh, is important for interpretation. Now as, uh, here, uh, we wanna go on just a little bit further and talk about the true gospel, the good news. As James Walker says, a former um, uh, Mormon who has come to know Christ, he says, before I trusted in Christ as my savior, I followed what Mormonism taught me about getting to heaven. Its gospel or its message about how to get to heaven included all of the laws, principles, rights, ordinances, acts, powers, authorities, and keys necessary to save and exalt men in the highest heaven hereafter. So Mormonism's full salvation comes through a combination of faith, baptism in the church, and many, many, many works. The Bible's gospel message focuses on Christ and Christ alone. When he died on the cross, we were forgiven and offered eternal life. To avoid any confusion, the Bible clearly explains that the gospel does not include laws or ordinances or works. It says even besides works. I mean without works, not by works as Ephesians 2 tells us. It's not by works that we are saved, it's the grace of God. Both Gospels say they lead to eternal life, but each has its own definition of what that eternal life is. In Mormonism, eternal life is the power to attain Godhood and have children in heaven. That can be achieved only through obedience to the Mormon church and having one's marriage sealed in a temple ceremony by the Mormon priesthood. In the Bible, eternal life is entering into an eternal knowledge of and fellowship with God and is achieved by personal faith in Christ as Savior. We learn from 1 John chapter 5, 11 and 12 that he who has the Son has life. In other words, as soon as you receive Christ as your Savior, that's when eternal life begins. John 17, you'll find in verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, I've come to the end of uh, the ministry you've given me here on earth and uh, to share eternal life. And he says, and this is eternal life. Here's a definition, right? And this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And so actually knowing Jesus is when your eternal life begins. Isn't that a great truth? Knowing eternal, that you have eternal life before you die 
Your eternal life begins here because the Holy Spirit comes within you when we receive Christ as Savior. And that's how you know that you know that you know. This poor guy, James Walker, was going through all the rituals brought up in fourth generation uh, of the Mormon church and yet had no assurance of salvation, being taught that you have to be in this church and you have to become part of this priesthood and part of this ritual and your works in order to find salvation. He tells us as he closes his little invitation track here, I urge you to come to God, the God of the Bible, the only true God. He loves you and sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins. You can find wonderful freedom when you admit to God that you are a sinner and trust Christ alone as your savior. And that verse again from 1 John 5, 11, 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son, not in a church, it's in his son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Well, that's not a complete treatise on the, um, all that there is about Mormonism, but I trust it has given you a little eye-opener that when people talk to you, that there is a difference in the use of these terms. And if they, a person starts telling you about eternal life is this, and God is this, and Christ is this, you back up and ask them to define those terms because you'll find that they are quite contrary. And my, uh, I should tell you that they go through a tremendous amount of training and uh, all the objections that you would have, all the arguments that you would have to question their doctrine and their teaching so that they have an answer ready for you. And in most cases, folks, they've gone through far, far, far more training than, than the average churchgoer has and the actual training time that uh, the Christians have. And that's, that's to our shame. And the zeal that they have to further the Mormon church and the zeal that they have that everyone must tithe. I mean, that, that is it. Uh, and yet, the, uh, I saw a survey not too long ago from the United States that something like only 2.3%, uh, that's it's very, very low, of believers and members of people of Christian churches in the United States tithe. That's horrible. And here we claim that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. This is not right. And uh, they put us to shame. So Heavenly Father, we ask that you do something special in our life today. Here that we would learn our scriptures and learn the word of God. And that we would pray for those around us. We pray for those trapped in cults such as the Mormons and Jehovah's Witness that, Father, they would come to be restless in their soul and want to come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. 